0: Dear Father, we thank you so much for this very short epistle. Uh, We thank you for these final words to the church uh, just prior to the last book of the Bible, Revelation. We thank you that you put it on John's heart to write to this man, Gaius, and that the Spirit inspired him as he did so, so that it would be preserved for us. We thank you for the preservation of this word. We ask for the Uh, Holy Spirit to guide us in our understanding. We ask that we be filled with your spirit uh, so that we might be in fellowship with you and with the apostles as we study your word. We praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. And this is the shortest book in the entire Bible. And we're still not going to do it in one Sunday. We're going to do it in two. We're talking about fellowship in practice and that was the very purpose for these two letters was to, to promote the practice of fellowship that was taught in 1st John, where 2nd John was a circular letter making 1st John a personal letter to each one of these churches. 3rd John is actually a very personal letter written to a single man, not to a congregation And it's written in light of a problem that has arisen in one of these local home churches where a man, Diotrephes, has refused to accept the emissaries from John. John sends people out to these various congregations, and Diotrephes says, Nope, no more. No one else from John. And so John sends a man to another man in this local congregation, perhaps in the same home church, Perhaps an elder in the same church, but maybe just another elder in a local home church in the same city. This man's name is Gaius, and he appeals to this man Gaius to accept the man, Demetrius, whom he has sent with this letter. Now, we don't know whether 3 John came after First and Second John or concurrently with it. He may have previously sent a letter that was refused by Diotrephes, and so as he sends First and Second John, he knows that he has no place to send it to in this local town and he has to to endear this man Demetrius to Gaius, appeal to him on the basis of impersonal love in Christ, that he accept this man into the church. Or else, First and Second John had been sent out and it had been rejected by one of the churches. And so John sent this letter of Third John to appeal to this local home church to receive the word of John. It's very difficult, if not impossible, to tell which of these situations is true, but the purpose of the letter is still very clear. These men had been rejected, and John was appealing that on the basis of truth and love that they be received, and that the word of God be received in these local churches. And so this morning, we look at happiness and fellowship, because this is truly how we could characterize both John and Gaius. They are happy in the fellowship that they are experiencing and enjoying because they are functioning in the body of Christ. They are both working together and they have both depended on the truth, not just believing it, but letting it work its way out into their activity and their actions. And so the main idea this morning is that we enjoy our fellowship by participating in the work of the gospel. As we come to better recognize and understand our identity in Christ, we better grasp our role in the body joy gladness and satisfaction result not in serving self but in serving god in the body of christ functioning well in the role which he made each of us to fill <clears throat> and so we begin with jo- john's statements of his own joy this is how he opens this letter he is very thankful that despite diotrephes in this local congregation rejecting the word that they are still faithful servants that he can send this word to. He is very thankful that he has heard of one of his children still walking in the faith. And so he sends his greeting to this man, Gaius, and he addresses himself once again as the elder. Now, last time we looked at why this was definitely John, who identified himself as the elder. But this week, let's just take a moment to look at why he uses elder instead of apostle. Well in first John he did appeal to his apostleship. He gave his credentials as one who is able to present doctrinal correction. And so he identified himself as an eyewitness sent out by Christ. This is his apostolic authority. He uses this in order to present doctrine, but in second and third John he is operating in a different function. He is exercising oversight over these churches. This is not the task of an apostle, but this is a task of an elder. We might also call an elder a bishop. That's the term that later developed in early Christianity. His job is to guide and shepherd these local congregations, and that's the purpose of 2nd and 3rd John, but not necessarily the function of 1st John, which is to correct doctrine. And so that is why he is appealing to his eldership here. He is exercising oversight over this church as he sends this letter to Gaius. He is hoping to promote faithfulness and fellowship to the word of God, which has already been presented. And he is writing specifically to request hospitality for Demetrius. Now, why Demetrius is going to need hospitality is another issue altogether. The Roman roads had made it very possible for men to be traveling all over Uh, Asia Minor, the Middle East, Greece, Rome. You could get just about anywhere you wanted to, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there are safe places to stay everywhere you go. In fact, I encountered this when I went to Korea. There are cheap places that you can stay, but you don't want to be caught dead staying there. They have these places called love motels, where you can stay for $2 an hour. That's a pretty cheap stay to stay at night. And when I first went there, I was recommended. Go there, it's the cheapest stay you'll get. I made it to the outside of that building and I thought, not a chance am I going in that building. But they also have day spas, where you can check in for $10 a day and you can sleep on the floor with about 100 other people. It's a very cheap stay. But once again, I thought, no way. I just don't feel safe doing that. But the other options are to stay at the Hyatt for $300 a night. There's not really an in-between option, and there's not really a safe option. But thankfully, I did have a friend in one of the cities in Korea, so I messaged him, and I said, could I stay at your house? And he said, absolutely. And you know, they brought me in and treated me just like one of the family. And that's what's going on here. There are hostels that this man could have stayed in, but this would contradict the message that he is there to preach. He is not going into these worldly brothels of sorts in order to bring the gospel. He is going to the churches. And so there's not a safe place for him to stay unless a brother opens his house to him. But back then, when you went and stayed with a family, it wasn't just we give you a bed and we give you a meal and you keep to yourself. You become part of the family for the time that you're there. Your reputation and your activity reflects on the family that is hosting you. And so Gaius, not knowing Demetrius personally, is taking a risk by letting Demetrius into his house. He doesn't know this man, but he comes with a very high regard of John. And so Demetrius, knowing John and trusting John, is able to let Demetrius stay this was very important. As we go through this letter, we see that Gaius is a very faithful believer, and that Gaius would definitely not need the correction from 2 John not to let false teachers into his house. Gaius was a very faithful believer. He was very faithful to the truth. And so as soon as he saw that this was a brother and that he came with the recommendation of John, we can be almost certain that Demetrius then stayed with Gaius. And we know that John probably knows Gaius personally. He addresses him as the beloved Gaius. This word comes up again and again, and in this letter alone, he'll use this word three times to address Gaius instead of using Gaius's name. Once again, this is what we call evocative. It's a noun of direct address. In 2 John, we only saw one. It was to the lady addressed to the entire church. But here, three times specifically, he reiterates beloved, beloved, beloved. He is appealing to John, or to Gaius rather, on the basis of Christian love. On the basis of their Christian brotherhood. On the basis of the love that is in him through Christ. Because this is what his whole letter was about as well. The love that we exercise towards our brothers and sisters in Christ is not love that originates with us, but originates with him and flows through us, because our cup has been filled with Christ's love, because God's integrity towards us has now worked its way into us through the gospel, we are able to reflect that same love. We'll get into this later in the sermon, but this is what we call impersonal love, love that does not require the attractiveness of the object. It only requires the integrity of the subject. John almost overuses this word love in all of his epistles. In all of these three epistles, we see the word love more times than we see it in the rest of the epistles combined. John is truly the apostle of love. And here, this man Gaius is at this time the object of John's love. And he is not presenting this love as mere platitudes in this letter. In fact, he emphasizes himself as the subject here. I love you in the truth. You don't need this blue letter or these blue letters, ego, I, in the Greek. These are redundant and unnecessary except to make a point. John is stressing that he truly does love this man, Gaius. And he loves him in the sphere of truth, in the sphere of Christ and the gospel and the faith that they share. This is their Christian brotherhood. They have moved from impersonal love to personal love, having grown in fellowship with one another somehow. In 1 John 4.11, we see this same concept in John's first epistle. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time, and if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. We've never seen God, but we have experienced his impersonal love in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter who you are. Jesus has died for you. It doesn't matter whether you have lived a rotten life or an exceptional life by worldly standards. Christ died for you. And you need that in order to live. But here, though this love that we've experienced that we haven't seen, we love this person in response, this Christ who died for us. So we ought to love one another, even those ones whom we have not seen. And then his love is perfected in us. His love is reflected through us. It reaches its goal in being extended to others. So who then is this man, Gaius, who is so beloved by John? Well, we don't see him in John's gospel. We don't see him in Revelation. This is the only place where Gaius is mentioned in John's writing. It probably is the only place that this specific Gaius is mentioned anywhere in Scripture, but some have proposed, by the popularity of this name in Scripture, that one of these three Gaiuses that we meet in Paul's writing, or in Luke's writing about Paul, that he may be one of these Gaiuses. So there was Gaius of Macedonia, who we meet in Acts 19.29 during the raid in Ephesus. He is seized together with Aristarchus, And he is a traveling companion of Paul. Now, sometimes people believe that this may be the Gaius that John is writing to because the riot that we see him in in Acts 19 is in Ephesus. And John was stationed in Ephesus. But John is sending his letters probably to a different home church if he was located in Ephesus. So I think we can easily rule out Gaius of Macedonia, but that... That uh, doesn't mean that Gaius couldn't be traveling. Wow. Nevertheless, this occurred in about 56 AD. There was also Gaius of Derby just a few verses later, and these are two different Gaiuses within just a few verses of each other in Acts. Acts 20, verse 4, we see that Gaius of Derby is a traveling companion of Paul now going to Jerusalem from Corinth. These are distinguished in the gospel in the uh, the book of Acts. But church history says that this Gaius of Derby became the Bishop of Pergamum, the elder of Pergamum, which was one of the churches under John's jurisdiction. and so some believe that this may be the Gaius that John sent this letter to. There is also Gaius of Corinth, who we see referred to in Romans sixteen twenty three and also 1 Corinthians 1, 14. And he had the distinction of being one of the very few people baptized personally by Paul. And we see that this man took Paul in, into his home, and that he was very hospitable towards Paul. And so some people look at the character of this Gaius and say that it matches the character of the Gaius in 3 John. Well, all of this evidence together actually totals... The uh, solution that we can't know. We simply cannot know if he is one of these three or if he is simply a fourth Gaius. We could call him Gaius of Asia. Now that he comes around in 90 AD, he may be an old man at this time, but there is no necessity of linking this Gaius with any of the Gaiuses that we meet with Paul. Gaius was a very popular name. In fact, uh, we know that Mary was such a popular name that three of the four women that traveled with John were named Mary. Gaius was a similarly popular name in Greek and Roman culture. If you went into a crowded room and you shouted, Gaius, you'd probably get five or six heads turning. There is simply no reason to assume that these Gaiuses that we meet in Acts are this Gaius. But we do know that he is a co-worker for the gospel with john and that he has at least some measure of authority probably being an elder in a local church body john then wishes some well-being towards gaius he says to him beloved i pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers now this verse has been co-opted by the prosperity gospel In fact, this verse alone and nothing else from 3 John, they just stripped this verse out and the uh, early prosperity gospel uh, proponent Oral Roberts said that this was his life verse and that what it teaches is that God wishes above all things for believers to have prosperity and health and that if you do not have prosperity and health, that you are not walking with the Lord, that the Lord has not blessed you. And we know that that is not true from the rest of Scripture. In fact, this very interpretation of this one verse contradicts everything else that John says in all of his writings. And so we're going to take a moment to look what exactly does this verse mean. John says, I pray, which is simply an idiomatic use that was used both in sacred writings and in secular writings as a well-wish. Kind of like the concept of goodbye today or please. Please goodbye means God be with you. It was all um, elided together from early English to now we just have this this simple phrase, goodbye. Well, we can expect to hear goodbye from rabid atheists as well. They're not literally wishing that God be with us as we go on our way. Now, the reason that we know that John is speaking here of prayer and not just well-wishing is because of who John is, the context of his letter, and the comparison that he makes down at the bottom, that this go well just as his soul prospers. John is wishing, he is praying towards God, that Gaius prosper physically just as he does spiritually. He has shown himself trustworthy with God's gifts that he has given him to this point. And we have no reason to believe that Gaius was a particularly wealthy man. But the whatever wealth he did have, he served the Lord with. And so God, or Gaius is, uh, or John is praying for Gaius, that Gaius would have the stability physically to be able to continue serving the Lord as he has been spiritually. This word, prosper, may not even be the best translation in the English word, because the English word doesn't quite grasp the concept, but I can't quite come up with a better word for it. So I think it's good to just look at the four uses of this word in Scripture and see how exactly this is used. Now, two of those four uses are right here in this very verse. He, uh, he prays that he would prosper, and just as his soul prospers. This, verse, or this verb is repeated twice, but it's used twice by Paul as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, we read, Now concerning the collection for the saints, that is a collection of money that Paul would pick up and deliver to saints who were in a more impoverished local church. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. Paul wants to make sure that the collections have been collected before he arrives, either so that they are ready to go or so that it not be a distraction when he is there. In other words, it is not the main point of the service, but he wants to make sure that these collections are ready to go for these churches of brothers who so desperately need it. But notice how he uses prosper here. It's not so that their personal wealth be enriched, but so that their ability to work and serve in the body be enriched, so that they are able to bless others with that. So we can say that this prosperity is according to one's ability to give. In Romans, The fourth use of this word we see for God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers making request if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. This one has nothing to do with material wealth, nothing to do with material prosperity, but his ability to travel to them. To bless them, to serve them in a spiritual sense. This is Paul's hope. And so we can rightly assume that this is what John is speaking of in 3 John. Gaius is a faithful servant, and John is praying that God continue to give him the means of faithfully serving in that same manner, especially since he has just sent Demetrius to his doorstep. He is hoping that this man will have the ability to serve Demetrius just as he has served other strangers. When thinking of prosperity, we want to look at Paul's words in Philippians 4.11. This is the attitude that we should have when thinking about material wealth. Paul says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means and i also know how to live in prosperity notice neither of these are taken as simple it is a struggle to live on humble means but as we depend on god this struggle becomes easier the burden is eased not because we get material wealth but because our priorities shift sometimes the things that we think we needed to maintain in our lives perhaps a big house that we need to keep or a fancy car that we need to keep, we realize we don't actually need that luxury. Perhaps our finances can better be spent on other things. And so the delights of the world that John spoke about in 1 John 2.16, all those things that Satan uses to tempt us and distract us as they start to fade into the distance, we start to realize what things are truly necessities and what things are not necessities. And so Paul is able to make those critical decisions, to live on humble means, knowing what is truly necessary and what is frivolous. But he also knows how to live in prosperity. He knows how to use this wealth wisely, not to increase his worldly temptations, but to serve the Lord and to think eternally with these material wealth that he has. And so he continues in verse 13, In any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And what is that secret? That secret is that I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He can live on nothing. And he can live in abundance because Christ is the one who strengthens him. We don't need Christ just when we have nothing. And then we turn to him and say, I don't know how I'm going to make my bills this month. Lord, I need you. But when we get a bonus at work, oh man, we better turn to him and say, Lord, I need you. How do you want me to use this? What is the responsible way to use this? Because all all material wealth is a gift and a blessing from God. It is his that he has extended to us. And we are to use it for his purposes. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction, Paul writes. The backstory to this is the Philippians had sent him money uh, while he was in prison. And he said that the money that he got from them was above and beyond anything that he needed. As he's sitting in prison with nothing, he said everything that they gave him is extra because he has everything that he needs in Christ. And so when John is praying that Gaius prosper, we can assume that John is here speaking of Gaius's continued ability to serve the Lord because he knows this is what Gaius does with his money. And he also wishes that Gaius be in good health. This is probably physical and mental health for the purpose of being able to serve. This is what Gaius does. He is an elder in this church. His life is about leading these flocks. And as we see, it's also about hosting those who come to him, whether he knows them or not. And this is to reflect the prosperity of his soul. And all of us have a prosperous soul because Christ Jesus has saved us. We are now identified together with him. And as we walk in this and as we learn what exactly this means, our soul becomes more and more healthy. That doesn't necessarily mean that our bodies are going to become healthy or that our pocketbook is going to become healthy because God can use the most faithful believers in little circumstances and in big circumstances. And so our focus is spiritual health, spiritual wellness, depending on God's word, growing spiritually with him. And God is going to work out the rest. And we rightfully can pray for one another, for health, and for the ability to afford apartments like we were praying for this morning. These are good things to pray about. But we pray for it on the basis of what Christ has already done in our souls. This is John's Gladness as well, because we see these two men participating in the gospel together. So John says, For I was very glad. This is his reason for well wishing Gaius. I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth. Some men had stayed with Gaius and they brought this testimony back to John. And as we'll see in a minute, they probably presented this as a praise and testimony before their congregation. We went to this church. We stayed with a man we did not know. We made a new friend because he extended to us the love of Christ. This made John very glad. This is the joy that he told us about in 1 John chapter 1, that our fellowship together brings joy. And so he says he has no greater joy than this. Than to hear of his children walking in the truth, no greater joy than to know of all those who he is in fellowship with because of the truth of the gospel. And so that also becomes important here because sometimes this little verse is taken by the liberal branch of Christianity to say that Gaius had one truth and Diotrephes had another truth. John liked. Gaius's truth better. But Diotrephes was actually the more conservative for God's Word. So they use this little phrase to say that John was actually the radical here. And Diotrephes was doing a good thing by refusing John's letters. And that is not at all the case. We can see here in the text, that John is not speaking of a subjective truth that Gaius has defined, but rather the truth that Gaius is walking in. But unfortunately, we have to get into a little bit of grammar to prove that. Wedged in between your truth and how you are walking in truth is this little Greek particle, kathos, which is a comparative particle, generally. It compares two items or two objects. We saw it just in the previous verse. He hopes that he would prosper and be in good health just as, kathos, your soul, prospers. He wants physical to be just the same as the spiritual, to reflect and be equal. And so if you look down here at the very bottom, we're expecting to see two equal things. With the kathos, we need to compare noun with noun, adjective with adjective, clause with clause, or verb with verb, the elements need to be the same on both sides. So if you look at the red cathos right in the middle, you need to see the same color below it as you see above it. And we don't see that. So this is not a comparative particle. It's not comparing two things. It's also not adverbial, which means it is not explaining the verb either of coming or of testifying. They are not testifying, or it's not about the brothers who have come testifying, this walking in the truth, but it is truly about the truth of John. Here, I'll switch that to English. So the point isn't that these brothers were walking in truth when they came, or that they were walking in truth when they testified. It's not about the brothers. In fact, we have two different subjects here brothers at the top and you down here, these two verbs refer to different subjects, which means they are unrelated syntactically. So this clause down at the bottom is not explaining the verbs of how these brothers came. The other option is that kathos sometimes indicates the content of direct speech, meaning that these are the words that the brothers said when they came to John and testified. That would look something like this when the brethren came and testified and the thing that they said to them was that you're walking in the truth. Now, we can hobble our way there, but that's not exactly what the cathos particle here is doing, because the content of direct speech is indicated by a dative here. In other words, we already have a content. We can't have two contents of speech. The content of what they came and testifying to this church was that Gaius was truthful. They came and testified to your truth. That was the content that they brought. And so the only option we have left is a very rare use of the kathos particle, which is something called apexegetical, which is a big scary word that basically just means it explains the meaning of a noun. And this is what we need in this passage as well. We need to understand, what does John mean by your truth? And John seems to understand that we need to understand, what do we mean by your truth? So the NASB has done a fantastic job translating this passage, in that they have written, for kathos, that is. This is the standard way of how you would, how you would translate an exegetical statement. That is, or in other words, how you are walking in the truth. So these two statements mean the exact same thing, in other words. They came and testified to your truth. What does it mean, your truth? How you are walking in the truth. Well, now we see that that truth is not subjectively based on John, but something outside of him that he is walking in accordance with. The same metaphor of walking that we've seen all through 1 John. When we are walking in the light, when we are walking in truth, that doesn't mean we're creating our own truth, but that we are aligning ourselves with the truth that has been revealed in the Word of God. This is what John is saying. They came and they said, You are doing exactly as the Word of God says. You are living a life reflecting God's revealed Word. And he's also being very emphatic here. Now, whenever you hear that something is emphasized in Scripture, Never let the person just leave it at that, but say, what is it emphasizing? What is the point of the emphasis? It doesn't mean we just want to say it with a bigger, louder voice. It means it's actually pointing to something or doing something. John is being very specific here in using all of these pronouns. Remember, in the very first verse, he specified that it is I who love you. Here, he is saying your truth and that's why this looks a little funky because john is emphasizing your truth and that is how you are walking in the truth these are unnecessary words john has put them in for emphasis for comparison the reason for the emphasis is to compare gaius's activities with Diotrephes's activities because when we get to verse 9 we're going to see Diotrephes acting differently In fact, the very accusation that the liberal wing of Christianity has for John here, that Diotrephes is actually the one acting appropriately and John is acting inappropriately, that's what John is arguing against here. John is stating that Diotrephes is acting inappropriately. And so he is comparing the activities of Gaius to show that. In 3 John 9, he says, I wrote something to the church. That may refer to 1 John which he had sent to these churches and Diotrephes says, no, not here. I wrote something to the church but Diotrephes who loves to be first among men. And that should perk our ears up because that's what Jesus said about the Pharisees. They love to be first among men. He does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds which he does. Again, these are stated emphatically unjustly accusing us with wicked words and not satisfied with this he himself now that is a very emphatic statement he himself does not receive the brethren either and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church john is building up an argument against Diotrephes, and he is building it up for gaius by showing gaius the distinction between his work and Diotrephes' work Gaius is is in accord with the doctrine of the Apostles, but Diotrephes is opposed to it. In other words, he went out as if he was from the Apostles, but he was not truly from the Apostles. Diotrephes is one of those antichrists which John was warning about. He is opposed to the doctrines of the Apostles, but he claims authority. And so John says, I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. And once again, we have an apexegetical statement, meaning that to hear explains the this. I have no greater joy than hearing of my children walking in the truth. This brings him great joy when he gets these good reports that those believers whom he administered to are still walking in the truth despite John's absence. This is the purpose of spiritual growth, the purpose of growing up. Now, John does call these whom he addresses as his children. And this brings just a little bit of debate of whether that means that these are all uh, converts of John or just under his spiritual tutelage. Because Paul, whenever he speaks of his children, he speaks of those whom he has directly, Converted through the preaching of the gospel. We see this in first Corinthians and Galatians and in Ephesians Where when he has someone that he has preached to and who has come to believe the gospel he then calls them his children. I Don't believe that it means here that John specifically wants to hear that his converts are sticking with the truth I think he would be just as happy to hear that someone else's converts are sticking with the truth and that is consistent with how John uses this term children in his epistles uh, and in his gospel, actually. It is those under his spiritual tutelage. We remember back in 1 John chapter 2 when he spoke of the fathers, the young men, and the children. John here is acting as a father, as a spiritual elder, instructing those who are younger than him. And now John, being an apostle and the elder over probably this entire lower Asia uh, peninsula, John doesn't probably have a father that is a human over him, but he is the father over fathers of flocks. In other words, he is a shepherd of shepherds. John is very thankful to hear of his grandchildren and great-grandchildren in the faith, still walking that those whom he is ministering to are ministering to others and that the gospel is being promoted and that people are actually heeding it, living by it, walking in it. This brings him joy and happiness because this means they are in fellowship with God and in fellowship with him. So he has no greater joy than that. This was his goal that our joy be made complete in the preaching of the gospel in the sharing of what Christ has done for us. And so here in verses five and six, actually verses five through eight, we're going to turn to the goodness of Gaius and see exactly why John believes that Gaius is acting so faithfully. What has he done that is so good and so faithful? Well, primarily he is reflecting God's impersonal love. Now this term In a secular sense doesn't sound very good but let me assure you impersonal love is a fantastic thing and it is the love of god that brings us into a saving relationship with him it is very important and very significant so in a moment we will look at what impersonal love is but first we want to see that that is what gaius is doing he is exercising impersonal love John once again says, beloved, reminding him of the Christian fellowship that they share. It says, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers. Now, this acting faithfully, uh, this is actually not an adverb, faithfully. It's an adjective, which probably means it is sitting in as the object of the verb doing. He is doing faithful things. Why do I say this? Because often today we are told doesn't matter what you do as long as you do it faithfully. doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it with all of your heart. This is not what John is saying. He is not just a passionate man. He is doing things that are in accordance with the faith that was handed down once and for all to the saints. The point is not that Gaius is doing the things that he is doing faithfully but that the things he is doing are consistent with his faith in the gospel. And so we might say that Gaius is doing faith things. The actions that have been reported to John are consistent with the requirements, the commandments of John's epistle and of the canon of scripture. And now we see that it is not just sometimes, or not just some things, but whatever, meaning in another sense, everything. This has the idea of repeated action. Gaius is consistent and continual in his good deeds towards the brothers. And of course, this is for the brethren. And we have looked at this multiple times through 1 John. That when he says brethren, he is speaking of Christian fellowship. In order to be a brother with a believer, you have to be born of God. This is what brings you into the family of God. And so he is acting in accordance with what John said right in the middle of his epistle. But whoever has the world's goods, that is the bios, the things that serve for physical health and physical prosperity, Those things we saw just a few verses before that John is praying that Gaius would receive from God. Whoever has the world's good and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? How do we see the love of God working in this man if it's not working its way out to other believers? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. This requires the impersonal love of God to be reflected in our lives. Because John specifically says here, it's not just brothers you know. It's not just the people from your local congregation who you are kind of partial to, that you kind of like. You give them a little extra and a leg up. He says, no, these are even or especially strangers. When a stranger shows up on your door and he is a brother in Christ, you take extra care of him. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. This is the reason, the cause of our love is the love that we have received from God. When he first loved us, and this is an expression of his personal, impersonal love. He loved us first impersonally. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So the distinction here between impersonal and personal love becomes very important. If we have this simple sentence, I love you, I is the subject, love is the verb, and you is the object of that verb. I direct my love towards you. In impersonal love, the subject is emphasized. You could replace that you with just about anything, and the statement would stand firm because it is about the love that the subject is extending towards the object. In personal love, the emphasis is on the object. I love you specifically, in contradistinction to others, with exclusion towards others. I love you. This personal love is the love that we feel towards spouses. It naturally and necessarily excludes others. That love is directed singularly towards another individual. Impersonal love demands the integrity, then, of the subject. Because the emphasis is on the subject and his action, the subject needs to have integrity. And when God acts in impersonal love, he has perfect integrity. And we know that his love is completely infallible and will reach its goal. But personal love demands the attractiveness of the object. It's really hard to say I love you if this person is being terrible, if we are exercising personal love towards that person. Impersonal love requires no acquaintance. We don't need to know the person whom we are extending this love to, but personal love requires that we know that object. We have to know something about it to know its attractiveness, to know its quality, The impersonal love of God is directed towards all. And so our impersonal love reflected from God's ought to be directed towards all. But personal love is directed towards few. Again, based on our personal knowledge of that object and the attractiveness of that object. Impersonal love is unconditional. And personal love is conditional. It is specifically because of God's impersonal love towards humanity that when atonement was made, it was made for all men where we have unconditional atonement. If God did not have impersonal love towards humanity to love us before we were lovely, then we would not have salvation because only he, as the perfect subject of love with perfect integrity, can extend that love to us. And when we come into relationship with him, we always stand on the foundation of his impersonal love towards us. And we move into fellowship with him, where we move into personal love, where we get to know a God and love him personally. And he gets to work in us and love us uh, personally, making the unlovable lovable. Because a brand new convert to the faith is not more lovable than he was just a moment before. Not in his actions, not in his deeds. He's still going to be a very worldly-minded person. But God is going to mold him by the reformation of his mind, as you might put it in Romans 12. As we learn who God is, learn who the subject of this impersonal love is, we begin to reflect him. And our love should become that completely inhuman love that is impersonal love. This is not known to humanity. In fact, I mentioned earlier how in house churches, it was very important that the person you take into your house have integrity because that person is going to reflect your reputation in that community. And if you bring in someone into your home who has a bad reputation, they will sully yours in your own community. And so the practice of hospitality was not one of generous giving at this time. In fact, if you were of lower status than someone else, you could be very sure that you would not be welcomed into their home because your low status would lower theirs. Your status reflects on theirs. So, you would have to be an object with social integrity, an object with social attractiveness in the world, in the cosmos system, in order to be welcomed into someone's home. You had to elevate someone else's reputation in order to be brought into their home. This would be a very self sacrificial request that John is making, that without knowing this person and without knowing his status, that Gaius welcomed him into his home. Surely if John had shown up on his doorstep and said, let me stay here for a few nights, Gaius would have been not just willing but pleased because John's status in the social world of the church was elevated. But we're not talking about the social world of the church. We're talking about the spiritual world of the church. And it does not matter who the object of that love is. We are to extend love to our brothers. In Romans 5, we see this impersonal love of God expounded in part of Paul's argument to God's righteousness. He says, For while we were still helpless, while there was nothing good about us as objects of love, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die but God demonstrates his own love towards us, and we could insert in there his impersonal love towards us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We have moved from impersonal love to personal love, in the fellowship with Christ. We should be very certain and very secure in the fact that if his impersonal love was good to save us, his personal love should be good to sanctify us. Now, very quickly here, we'll see who came and informed John of Gaius' faithfulness. In the first part of verse 6, John simply says, They have testified to your love before the church. When he says they, the closest antecedent is going back to those strangers whom Gaius has welcomed into the church. Though Gaius may have entertained men that he knew, the testimony that stood out to John was those who he knew to be strangers to Gaius, who had stayed in Gaius' home. They came and they testified before the church, specifically of his love. They testified of his truth. And they testified of his love. Neither of these find their source in Gaius. Both of them find their source in God and are reflected through Gaius. And he testified before the church. Now, John kind of made up a word here uh, for before the church. And this probably is to draw emphasis to this concept. This The first two letters on this N is just like the English word in. In. And this enopion then becomes in the presence of. So we are drawn into a physical world here, physically in the presence of the assembly, which is translated the church in Third John 6. Now this is the only book in all of John's writing that uses the church, this word in Greek, ecclesia, to refer to the body of Christ. And so, being a rare word used by John, it probably has a more specific meaning, not a technical meaning of just the church body in general, but the physical assembly of these church believers. This testimony to Gaius' faithfulness came during an assembly of the local body of the church, in which John heard that this man Gaius was faithful. And so we think perhaps John may not have even known this Gaius, but he is sending this letter to him, showing the impersonal love that he himself has towards Gaius, hoping that he will extend that impersonal love to Diotre- or to uh, Demetrius because his connection in that city has cut him off. Diotrephes is no longer walking with the truth. And so John is paving a new inroad. And he has heard witness by strangers to Gaius that Gaius is a faithful believer. And so John is hoping and praying that Gaius will welcome his emissary. And so John, now I believe, feels comfortable to extend an imperative or a command to Gaius. They have testified to your love before the church You will do well to send them on their way. Now this is a Greek idiom, you will do well, that they use to say please. Please send them on their way is what he is saying. It's not an imperative form, but this is very common in John's writing. He very, very rarely gives a direct command, but always mitigated commands. He is expressing to Gaius that the good thing to do would be to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. Now this send them on their way doesn't mean kick them out, but it literally means to send them forth, even to escort them or to accompany them, either personally with your material wealth or else with an escort that you have provided. In other words, protect them, not just when they are in your home, but as they are leaving as well. This verb connotes aid. He says to aid them on their way, to give them help, specifically in a manner worthy of God. And what does that mean? Does that mean treat them as if they are God in your home or treat them as part of the family of God? Just as John had said in his first epistle, if you claim to love God, but you do not love your brothers, how does the love of God truly abide in you? In Colossians 1.9, we see this phrase again, says, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you will be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. In other words, spiritual maturity and growth. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Walk in a manner worthy of the revelation of scripture, revealing God. To please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints and in light. This is probably what John means here when he says, in a manner worthy of God. It is our integrity reflecting God's. Finding its source in God and not in self. God is our strength and our work reflects this when we walk by the spirit. And so he is saying to do this in a manner worthy of God. In other words, depending on God's power. So that both Gaius and those brothers are operating in this sphere of God. Worthy of the call and the command. Finally, then we have the prerogative of participation that John extends to Gaius. He has given him a mitigated command at this point, but he is about to tell him that this is not just good for him, but this is truly what is necessary. He says, for they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Now, this four gives us the grounds that John is supposed to, or that Gaius is supposed to help these men on. It explains that they went out for the sake of the name. Now, this is different than the Antichrists and their reason for going out. In 1 John 2.19, those men we were warned about, it says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. They went out preaching a gospel contrary to the apostles' gospel. But this man man, has come preaching in the name of Christ. In 2 John 10, John warned, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, and in verse 9, we saw that that is the teaching of Christ, probably both about Christ and which Christ first brought, they do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. The same thing is true on the other side of the coin. When you participate in the ministry of those who are preaching the gospel, you are participating in the work of God. And so just as we are to refuse participation in the preaching of the false gospel, we are to accept participation in the preaching of the gospel. And so we see that they went out for the sake of the name. Now, this is interesting because 3 John is also the only book in the New Testament which does not mention Jesus by name, much like Esther in the Old Testament that does not mention God. But we know that this is about Jesus Christ because this was an early uh, Christian euphemism for Christ, the name. First time we see it like this is back in Acts chapter 5, where In Jerusalem, these apostles were first preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and John was a part of this crowd. And so as they were preaching Jesus Christ, soon after his crucifixion and resurrection, the Sanhedrin didn't like this very much, and they gathered together and tried to figure out what they should do with these apostles. And so they, the Sanhedrin, took his, Gamaliel's, advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them, and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they released them. And so they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. This is the name that John is saying that these men are going out to preach. This is the name that is above every name because of Christ's finished work, because of Christ's obedience to God, because of who Christ is. He needs nothing but the title, the name, because it is the name above all names. As they went out preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, it says that they accepted nothing of the Gentiles. Now, this is not the usual word for Gentiles, and that is important, too, because many of these strangers, and probably Gaius himself, are Gentile. And so, how could they receive nothing from Gentiles? Does this mean that they will only accept money from Jews? It doesn't mean anything of the sort, because we do have two different Greek words from the same root here. We have ethnikon, which is the word used here, and we have ethnon. Ethnon means a Gentile by nature. Ethnikon means a Gentile by character. And so this is not a category of Gentile. This doesn't mean that they are ethnically not Jewish, but this means that they are characterized by the things that Gentiles are characterized by. Those who are unbelieving, the Gentilish, they are not to be participants in the gospel in the same sense that believers are. And this is kind of a sad state of the church uh, in these days and in other days where believers are very reluctant to share their material wealth. But sometimes Gentiles are much more willing. Now we have a different basis for sharing. Gentiles will do it in order to favor or find favor in the gods or in karma or in whatever. They want to be a good person and so they give money and they donate to these charities and to those charities, and sometimes those charities happen to be Christian charities, and sometimes those Christian charities are surprised to find that more unbelievers donate to their charities than believers do. And so, significantly here, these are refusing to accept any wealth from unbelievers. God's work is going to be done on God's means. We're going to see this again in a few weeks when we look at Abraham and Melchizedek, where Abraham refused the bounty of Sodom, but instead worshipped God and God alone and was blessed by the priest Melchizedek. This is the same idea. We are beholden to no one but God, and God blesses. And as God blesses and gives opportunity, we extend that impersonal love in the body of Christ, and we are self-sufficient in God. This concept of Gentiles in the flesh we see in Ephesians 2.11, something that believers are told that they formerly were, but that they no longer are. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. Having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so in this world where we seek for an identity here on earth, as Christians, sometimes we don't realize that we have an identity in heaven and that our identity on earth has been overridden. And that is a good thing. The world today is constantly lost in battles of what is your identity. I identify as this, I identify as that, often contradicting nature, but sometimes even just going full bore into nature. I am a black Christian. I am a Chinese Christian. I am a white Christian. These are ridiculous identifications. I am a Christian. I am saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. I am brought near even to the covenants of a people that is not me. That is Israel. God has brought us near to him and he has given us a new identity and that identity is in him. We need no further distinction. If he is our identity, we need nothing else. He is all sufficient. And so In verse eight, John says, therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. Now, this therefore is a Greek particle, un, which is the only time in John's epistles and in Revelation that he uses this word. It draws logical inference from an argument made previously, but it is used over 200 times in the gospel of John. So something else is going on here. We see almost a conclusion happening here at the midpoint of Third John. He is drawing a conclusion from what he has just said about these unbelievers, that we, fellow believers, ought to support such men. And what kinds of men, those men, as would not compromise with the cosmos system, but would preach the name of Jesus instead. You see, when you accept money from the world, you are beholden to the world. That is one reason why Abraham will refuse to take the loot of Sodom, because he wants to say that nobody but God has enriched him. He has not prospered by means of the world, but he has prospered by means of God. And so in the same way, when the gospel is preached, we want to be able to say that it is God's victory, so that God may get the glory and that God alone may be glorified. And so these deserve our support. We ought to support those who are going out accepting no money from the unbelieving world system. God is sufficient to fill all of our needs, and He is going to allow us the ability to serve others. But He is not necessarily going to allow us the ability to enrich ourselves. And if that is what we are doing with our funds, they are probably going to dry out and come short we are probably going to find that we need far more than we have. But when we give, we find that we need far less than we thought we did. And that all of those needs, God is taking care of and he is faithful to us. And it is good sometimes not to be able to afford worldly things because they are simply distractions. They are things that we put before God, put between us and God, and our relationship with God begins to depend on those things. If I can't have this, then God has failed me. But who has decided that you have needed that? Are you listening to God and allowing Him to lead? Are you allowing Him to guide you in your life? Or are you telling Him what your life needs to look like and then deciding that you need to be a money pit for all of God's resources? We would much rather use our resources here on earth to build our spiritual house, looking forward to eternity, rather than building this temporal house here on this earth, those things that are destined to be destroyed, to fly away, where no place will be found for them anymore. How much of the blessings of God are wasted serving ourselves? when we could be serving the gospel by serving one another. John says when we support one another, specifically those who are in the service of God in preaching the gospel, we are fellow workers with them in the truth. God has not called all to be missionaries. He's not called all to be preachers and pastors and Bible study teachers, but he has called us all as members of the body to serve the Lord, and to serve our brothers and sisters in the church. I'll close with this passage from 1 Corinthians. This was a very messed up church that needed a lot of good correction. And as Paul winds towards the end of this epistle, he starts emphasizing the importance of love. In fact, chapter 13 of this epistle is one of the best Descriptions of what love is, what God's love is. And he precedes that by showing us who we are in the body of Christ. He says, But now God has placed the members, that is us, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. Where you are in the body is where God has placed you, so that you would have a role to fill there. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members but one body. Imagine that. Imagine if our church had all one kind of Christian with one role to fill. If all 30 plus of us were the pastor, this would be chaos. It wouldn't work. None of us would get very far in our spiritual growth. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Imagine if I were to tell all of you that really only my job matters here and none of you are necessary, I would have an empty church next Sunday and my role would be useless. I would be preaching to thin air. Each one of you is important, not just as the object of receiving preaching, but serving in the body of Christ. In fact, some of you, many of you, serve far more important roles than I do here. There are many things to be done in the body of Christ. It is not just one, it is not just preaching the gospel. And so, all of these are important. On the contrary, he says, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable on those we bestow more abundant honor and our less presentable members become much more presentable. Now my dad has diabetes and unfortunately he also got frostbite and his feet were also already pretty messed up, so he lost two toes. And the first comment he made after recovering was, I had no idea how necessary that big toe is. First couple of times he tried to walk around, he fell flat on his face. It is a seemingly insignificant piece of the body but it supports the structure above. It is very necessary. And you know, some Christians serve the role as the toe in the body, and there is no less glory in this than serving as the eye or the ear or the hand. Every bit is important, and all the glory goes to God. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it, But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it." Our main idea this morning was we enjoy our fellowship by participating in the work of the gospel. And that doesn't mean just preaching the gospel, but in serving the church, which preaches the gospel. As we come to better recognize and understand our identity in Christ, the objects of personal love now identified with him and able to be conduits of God's impersonal love. We better grasp our role in the body. Joy, gladness, and satisfaction, just as we saw John sharing with Gaius. These are the results not of serving self, but of serving God and the body of Christ functioning well in the role which he made each of us to fill. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of fellowship and service in the body of Christ. We thank you that you have prepared these works already ahead of time, that you have blessed us all with spiritual gifts and the ability to serve, and we praise you that all of these will be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. We pray that we would bring honor and glory to your name and that we would preach your word faithfully, that we would faithfully walk in your word, and that all those who encounter us as a local body of believers would feel the impersonal love of Christ extended outward towards them. We praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.